0: is stealing in as relapse sums up
1: Welcome to episode 396 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Catonsville, Maryland, I'm Andrew Brocas. I will be joined shortly by Carlos Welch in Las Vegas, Nevada, and by our guest today, Sam Grafton, who I believe was in London, England when we spoke to him, but about to fly to Paris. What a life. I imagine most people will know Sam, but in case you don't, Sam is a longtime professional player. Uh, We first had him on the show in 2014. He was on episode 75. He was already an established high stakes player then, and he's only gone higher since. Uh, He's now a regular on the nosebleed circuit, which is why the super high roller circuit, maybe more accurate, uh, which is why he's living this jet setting lifestyle. We were fortunate. To catch up with him in between the PCA and the, uh, I guess it's EPT Paris, which is where he was flying off to. Uh, Sam is for for people who lament that we don't have characters in in poker anymore, or that they've all been replaced by gto bots Uh, i think sam is a great refutation to that sam is bursting with character sam also knows his solvers very well knows his game theory very well and we get into that in this interview but i think sam is proof that you can still have a big personality despite uh really understanding strategic poker and the mathematics of poker At a high level. Uh, Sam is also a commentator for many different poker venues. So you may recognize his voice, even if you didn't realize that you had heard him before. And he's just an all around, I think, smart and entertaining guy with uh, a good head on his shoulders, both in and outside of the game. Sam also appeared on episode 144 in 2015, but it has been quite a while since we spoke to him on the show, so I was very glad we had the opportunity to get him back on here. As I mentioned, uh, we do have a decent amount of strategy talk in the episode, so we're going to get right into it. Of course, if you do want more strategy segments from us, you can hear Carlos and me talking strategy five days a week by joining our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash ThinkingPokerDaily. That will also get you entered into a drawing to win a free one-month starter subscription to GTO Wizard. Last request I'll make of you, Uh, episode 400 is coming up fast. So this is 396, so just a few more episodes, and we will have a huge milestone on our hands. We were thinking about what we wanted to do for that, and uh, Carlos suggested that we have clips of some of our favorite moments from you know, throughout the 10 plus years that we've been doing the show, which is of course a great suggestion, but I was also a little daunted by the idea of trying to go through 400 episodes. Uh, it's actually more than 400 because we had a few that were like, you know, 98.5 or, or something like that, but you know, 400 episodes worth of content, that's probably, I don't know, six 700 hours of, of the podcast. Not that I would listen to all of it, but I was daunted of, by the idea of trying to find some clips, and uh, certainly we'll contribute our suggestions. But uh, Carlos had the further good suggestion to uh, try to get you all to assist us with this. So we would love to hear from you what are some of the most memorable moments for you from the podcast's history. Certainly we're happy to hear from folks who have been listening from the beginning or have gone back to listen from the beginning and have moments that stand out. But even if there was something in a recent episode that you thought was particularly you know, insightful or made you laugh or whatever, I'm happy to hear those. Of course, the more detail you can give us, the better. If you have a timestamp, that's great. But if you just vaguely remember, like, oh, it was really interesting when uh, Jamie Kirstetter was on the show and she was talking about such and such, that's still a good starting point. So we would love to have input from as many of you as possible into what you consider some of the most memorable moments from our uh, coming up on 400 episodes. A lot of different ways you can communicate those to us. You can leave a comment on the blog blog at thinkingpoker.net in response to this episode. You can email me, andrew at thinkingpoker.net. You can tweet at me at thinkingpoker. There's probably other ways as well if you get creative. Uh, So you can uh, there's there's a Thinking Poker Facebook group, uh, a little bit inactive, but I'll still get I'll see the message. I'll get an alert on there if you were to comment there. So find a way to uh, get it to me. Let me know. Let us know what are some of your favorite moments from the show's history and we would love to include those in our big episode 400 celebration thank you and please enjoy this interview with the incomparable sam grafton So Sam, the the last time that you were on the show was 2015. And uh, at the, I think it's even been a few years since you and I have spoken, by the way. So it's, it's nice to talk to you again. Um, but uh, at, at the time, the, the big news was that you were going to be one of the commentators on the Shark Tank. I think. Um, so you know, we've had a, a bit more for to uh, celebrate in your career since then, including your five point five million dollar win uh, recently. And you know, I've, I've always thought of you as a great player, but I have the sense that you. I don't know if it's a turnaround in in your career, or I don't know how you, you think of it, but I, I feel like there was a moment where you um, skyrocketed. <laughs> you know, where where, where you kind of jumped up a, a few tiers in terms of of your poker um, skill and and kind of the, the competition that you were playing against and and the stakes that you were playing. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah, I guess there's obviously just a lot of uh, focus on 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 the super high rollers, I guess, you know, it's, it's the same, whatever card room you come up on, uh, up in, everyone's always interested in, in in what the biggest game is, you know, if that's a two, five game or a 50, hundred game or a big PLO game roped off in the corner, one's kind of fascinated with that. And, and I guess like playing, you know, the the super high stakes as I've been doing, um, you know, I was doing a little bit before COVID for, I guess, 18 months prior to COVID. Mm -hmm. And after COVID, you know, yeah, it's definitely has a a lot of of attention on it. I've been fortunate enough to run really well as well at those stakes. I've seen a lot of people. That is the most important uh, skill. Yes, exactly. Um, You know, there's a lot of very talented players that maybe have come and tried out um, playing those and and not run so good. And and then it's harder to continue. And yeah, I've been very fortunate in the right from the word go. I I put together some caches and final tables and then see culminating in that. Um, score in Cyprus, which was, you know, incredibly gratifying, and and yeah, was was a big deal, I guess, for sure.
1: How did you get to the word go? Like, how, how did you come to the conclusion that you you wanted to start playing uh the like the, the super high rollers and you know prepare yourself to where you felt like you would be you know competitive to to take on that circuit?
2: Yeah, it's it's hard to know actually. I guess there was. Yeah, it's hard to think about whether it was a really conscious decision. There was just a good spot one time in um, in Prague where there's a, a, a reasonably good 50K. And I can't remember what was... Maybe it clashed with Super High Rollerball one year. They got on Super High Rollerball. There was a feeling that it was going to be be a bit more open than normal. Uh, and I was, I was very lucky to have encouragement from some peers, you know, I was. I, I've been getting good results online for a couple of years. This is, of course, one of the things that online cash game players experience, where they're, they're you know, some of the best players in the world. No one pays any attention to because, <laughs> then the nature of live poker, you know, live tournament poker it's really at the forefront of, of the public understanding of poker and, and 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 poker fandom. Whereas what goes online doesn't doesn't really have as much of an impact on the on the sort of public consciousness. And I'd be doing well online. And, and and so there was like, people were like, we'll take the action. You know, you should. And they, and they were players that I sort of trusted, you know, okay, if they, they think I'm good enough to step up. And so I played and I, I sort of felt, I was a bit overconfident probably in myself, actually. You know, the first few high rollers I played, um, I remember going to Vegas and playing 50K and 100K. I really thought, ah, oh, I'm just as good as anyone. I, I can really do this, uh, which is but which is probably a good way to come in. It's probably better to come in overconfident um, and be knocked down a, a peg or two. Um, you know, I de- now I definitely have the, uh, like even way even more respect for the people that have been doing it for a long period of time and, and realize what it takes, sort of in terms of mental fortitude as much as skill to to sort of survive at those stakes. But I came in sort of ready to fire and ready to go. And I didn't cash that one, but then I, uh, I cashed, uh, I think the 50K and, and the 100K in Vegas and then got a second in Barcelona. In, in what was my, you know, I talk about running good, like that was my first 100K euro buying and I got second, just like last month I got, or a couple of months ago, I got first in my first ever 200K euro buying, you know, so running, running very, very hot. And then, um, yeah. And, and, and so that just encouraged me. To to kind of push on with it. When you mentioned the challenges
1: with regard to mental fortitude, I mean, obviously, it's like the higher stakes, and I guess I felt like in in my own poker journey, which hasn't taken me to to quite those uh, staggering nosebleed heights. But you you, you kind of get to the point where you know losing five thousand dollars feels the way losing fifty dollars once did. Is, is there a point where that drops off, like where it it's it, it's not linear like that?
3: Yeah, I think
2: it's it's not just the stakes because obviously you're you sort of taking a piece that you're rolled for in general. Um, and actually, I'm sort of more conservative with the pieces I take in terms of my uh, as a percentage of my net worth. I, I gambled a lot more earlier on in the in the tournaments. Um, I think it's just the demo, the taxing nature of, of of playing against really high level opposi- opposition. You, you, I think I've become a lot more conscious of poker as you're being set a math problem. You've got 30 seconds to solve it. You would set another math problem. You've got 30 seconds or a you know, game theory problem. And uh, you've got to execute under pressure on a TV table with a shot clock against someone you know observing you for anything you might give away physically. And you're against a, a sort of very high-calibre opponent where there's not a, an easy you know easy deviation or an easy mode to be in where you can just be like ah they've, they've always got it here or they they're never bluffing here or 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 the opposite they've got way too many bluffs when you really haven't worked through the problem and, and and even sometimes mixed strategies of course it's just very very demanding and and when you do it for 12 days in a row um where you're re-entering continually and you've got to play just as well on the second bullet on the third bullet or when you've dropped off the first four tournaments um and you know, forgive yourself when you make mistakes. Recompose yourself, uh, and go again.
3: Um, you know that that's when it's that's when it's demanding. One thing about you know these sort of games that always struck me as um, demanding would be knowing that you've solved that math problem correctly, but your opponent probably has as well. <laughs> sure. so it, it, it feels like like it would drive me crazy to just like more or less exchange coolers all day yeah of course I mean I mean fortunately I mean we are
2: I am making mistakes and other people are making mistakes and then of course you know the, the nature of having like you know just one recreation at the table could really like throw off the dynamic now you might want to play a different way you know of course that, that that's what what makes it even more demanding is now now that you're playing multi-way, you know, uh, with someone who's VPing a lot, right? You might want to switch to an exploitative strategy. It's just okay. I've got a good hand. Just start putting in money. But if you, if you know, if you're going to do that because there's the recreational in it, when you don't do it, and now on the turn you end up heads up against a player that knows. Well, maybe you're going to do. You know, you your ranges shift, and 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 now you've got to rec- recalibrate as to where you are in your own range or what you've given away about the strength of your hand or Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, or and think. Okay, maybe they're coming into more pots in the big blind uh, because this player's in the middle, or maybe I'm flatting a wider range, or am I flatting even stronger hands? And my range is, you know, uh, now includes jacks and queens because I don't want to blow such and such a player out of the pot in the big blind. Yeah, it's it's a very it's a lot to think about in each and every hand. Um, so so yeah, it just. I mean, it's just very, very challenging, basically, and and so it makes me think about the guys that have been doing it for for four years, five years, um, you know, since, you know, there's there's guys like I Dan Smith, Sir Watts, uh, Tim Adams, you know, who've been doing this for eight years at, at the highest level, and and what that must sort of take to to still remain motivated and and at the top, and yeah, it just it also it involves like. Um, Adjusting your lifestyle a little bit as well over the course of the year, because of course, you know, poker. I, I saw Feraldo do a funny tweet the other day, something like, um, "We don't do this because it's easy. Uh, we do this because we thought it was going to be easy." You know, so, <laughs> I
1: love that
2: guy. <laughs> yeah, so <Feraldo's laughs> endlessly hilarious, and and yeah, it's it's like you st- you started off playing this game, and you saw sort of, yeah, one of the great things was you didn't have to adjust your lifestyle at all and you could just do exactly as you wanted the rest of the time and you could goof off on trips and and you know i've and now uh, you know you've got to be prepared to to play long days and challenging final tables and and such like so so there's also a kind of adjustment to your lifestyle and and your approach and yeah all of these things
1: yeah i I think that's part of why i felt like there was a a sort of seismic shift in sam uh that I, I always thought of you as sort of like that goofy, um, like you're describing in the sort of, oh, I can play poker and just kind of like have a good time and, and do whatever else. And then of a sudden I was like, oh, this guy buckled down. Like he really he really put his back into it and, and the results are showing.
2: Yeah, it's really nice to see. Obviously, I, I've been very fortunate in, in the way that the sort of hard work at studying has translated into results because obviously that's there's no guarantees of that. And then I'm trying to catch up, I think, you know, with the lifestyle of of... of that, that's something I need to work on if I'm going to continue to do this over the next two or three years. Because, of course, again, at the beginning, you're just kind of like, oh, i just play like the odd good one, jump in, or okay, like I play a normal World Series schedule, but there's going to be these two high rollers where I'll make sure I'm a bit more rested. But, you know, for instance, going to Vietnam, um, you know, there's a, there's a you're playing a high roller every day, or, or in Bahamas, actually, I ran deep in the main events, but had I not done, there was a 25K or 50K or you know, I was gonna play my first 250k. And, and so then you need to be uh, you know, sharp and, and ready to roll.
1: So are you doing the whole thing? I mean, do you have the the workout regimen and the nutritionist and the, no, nutritionist no, so and the got, mental game no, coach? I'm exposing,
2: we've got we fortunately unfortunately this little this should end in me saying so now I'm doing <laughs> all of these things, but no, I'm not I'm not very good at that. And that's something I need to get better at. And you know what, as I say, it makes me Look, a look at the guys that, that that have done it over such a long period of time. I mean, it's also managing. You know, um, I think a lot of people as well. Like, no matter what stakes you're playing poker, uh, particularly in the early years of poker, when you're very obsessed with it, you can kind of feel disconnected from um, reality and, and and what your friends are doing and and the day to day. And and that's also something. You know, it's such high adrenaline to play high stakes. I mean, just this week, obviously, I. You know, I was very lucky. The PSPC was a great event, and and I cut loose on the last couple of days, which was really, really nice. But obviously, I did have a sort of 11 big blind all in with 12 left with 4.5 million up top. And, you know, in the moment, I didn't feel anything, but but slowly that numbing wears off, and you realize, yeah, I had a this 22 big blind pot was worth, you know, 900K in equity or whatever. Yeah. In a tournament where, you, you know you, – like you have all all of yourself in the sense that you know you swap so people you want to give money to as well. I mean, it's just it's just then hard to come back and 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 readjust to 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 real life and do the chores that you've got to do and and be a normal human being. And I, I think that was a something I felt when I was first in poker and so obsessed with poker I disconnected a bit from reality. And then I found much better balance. And I feel like sometimes recently with with playing really high stakes, you know, I am a bit bit cut off from from reality you know um just because of the obsessive nature of the studying and the playing you know reading newspaper or, or, or making sure that you're yeah just understanding what the rest of the world is up to it is a little bit harder
1: well the traveling too i feel like is, is contributing to the reality that you're absolute just
2: stone worst thing about it isn't it i mean traveling is just going on airline flights and like the jet lag and stuff is absolutely abysmal really not fun obviously it's it's very exciting to go to places uh you know a lot of these tournaments are you know i'm going to be going to vietnam for the first time and that's going to be brilliant i'm going to make sure i have 10 days at the end to see a bit of vietnam and i'm super super excited about that but yeah the you know continual booking of flights or making sure you're there and working all out the visas and esters and all the stuff you have to do is very it's very hard
1: i guess even just moving the money i mean maybe maybe there's better things set up when when you're like a super high roller like my experiences of playing in europe was just even like when you think about oh it's not trivial to just like have ten thousand euros you know like that there's there's expense involved in getting that
2: yeah, of course, of course, like maintaining the liquidity, right? So, you know, with, do you want to, you know, it used to be, oh, you keep, well, just keep USDT on exchanges. And then, you know, you're seeing them fall or, yeah, don't have that, don't have that, um, don't have that uh, coin or whatever it's called, you know, it's it's unravelling or it's pegged to this or that, you've got to worry about all sorts of things. Yeah, it's very, very difficult. And, and yeah, that's not, why you get into poker or the part of it that you love or or really enjoy. And and actually some of the obsessive uh, work that you're doing to get good at poker kind of makes you even less suited to the day-to-day sort of bureaucracy of living, uh, of of getting through things and doing things efficiently.
1: Yeah, I I can imagine when you're like, oh, I'm going to be playing poker for $100,000. I can afford to spend an extra $1,000 on a flight and not even think about it. But like you maybe can't or at least shouldn't.
2: (laughs) Yeah, or just but, but yeah, but but unfortunately, they don't. When you turn up late for your flight or whatever because you you living in Cloud Cuckoo Land, they don't. You know, you can't unfortunately say, "Hey, I'm Sam Grafton. Do you not know what I do?" Like, like of course, I'm going to be twenty minutes late for for check They they say, "No, you can't come on the plane." <laughs> so yeah.
1: How have you found the? Uh, I mean, I guess it sounds like you knew a, a fair number of the people before you you got onto the circuit. But is is it kind of like? clicky or or were you you know part of part of the the circle now like what, what's the social uh dynamic like
2: yeah i think i think as everyone says the camaraderie is is really nice and actually to play where you're always well looked after you're playing eight-handed you're playing with a shot clock you get given the best dealers you get various perks and that's it's it's very very pleasurable and, and sometimes when i'm plunged into a tournament that I'm playing. Uh, fortunately, PokerStars where well, I play most of the live stuff, we don't we don't do ten handed anymore. But if I'm ever suddenly playing ten handed or or, or nine handed, or you know, people are taking advantage uh, of the amount of time allotted, so there's no shot clock and they're, and they're taking increased amount of time. It can be very very frustrating. You realise how how lucky you are. Of course, there is a little bit of um, sort of sublimated competition between us you know it, it, obviously if i'm winning someone that is in close proximity is is losing if if i'm having a great year someone's ha- a very talented poker player is having a bad year and so yeah sometimes that comes out a little bit or there's a little bit of, of of politics and you know and, and and you're are you kind of aware that you're continuing to be sort of a you know we we i'm sure i obviously study a lot of tape and i'm sure they study me so there's a kind of sense you're you kind of there's a bit of peer review going on at all times you're very very scrutinized right so so that can that can impinge a little bit on the dynamic but i think in general uh, everyone's pretty good and, and by all accounts i think think the scene is you know i, I don't i'm played long enough to say with certainty but i think i think the high roller scene is is as good as ever been And a lot of that i give credit to you know some of the top guys um you know kale or tim they're they're a bit warmer and more open than 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 the people have been in the past and and so there's kind of a friendly dynamic away from the table and 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 to to a large extent at the table It's, it's reasonably good how about with
1: the um and I, I probably shouldn't call them whales, the, the recreational players who are who are playing these things. I mean, I, I think for for some people who are on the high roller circuit, it's very natural that they would kind of uh, fall right into rubbing elbows with like an oil executive or or whatever. And I feel like with your, your politics, or at least the, what little I, I know of your politics, um, that might be a little bit more of a, a conflict for you.
3: Yeah, of course. I
2: mean, there's, yeah. The, the, well, firstly, there is obviously a lot of like, the VIPs are absolutely great guys, and and you know, um, one or two have become really, really good friends. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of Open particularly as is one of my closest friends, and and actually has been an amazing journey from being a recreational player to being, I think, one of the top poker players in the world. Um, like far outstrips the majority of the vast, vast majority of professionals. I think he's I think he's comfortably winning in in any field in the world. Um, so that's, that's amazing to see. And, and it's amazing to spend time with, with people from different backgrounds. Um, yeah, of course, in terms of, of, of the backgrounds of some of the the poker player, uh, the recreational players, I mean, I think there's anyone. Yeah. I don't think there's anyone who does anything too egregious, but, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's sort of topics that, that I would kind of avoid or, or, you know, I'm just frank about if, if someone's, I disagree with someone's politics and it comes up at the table, but you know, I think, again, I think, uh, I mean, we've talked about this before, there, there is a sort of sense of how I view a card table the same as like a meal table where, you know, you're you're open to other people from different backgrounds and, and you sort of, you know, just like you would break bread with someone from a different background, you're sort of okay playing cards against each other. And yeah, the and in general, we avoid points of sensitivity with each other, Um yeah, and, and and that that's the that's the the general approach uh, that I take to it, and and I've never really had a had a problem up to this point in terms of anyone that I've
1: played with. So you you mentioned a moment ago, like obviously I study tape, and and that was actually not obvious to me at all. <laughs> I mean, it, make, it it kind of makes sense, but I wonder. I mean, if you're playing with like an Isaac Haxton or something, I, mean, I feel like my assumption would just be he's probably not doing anything all that exploitable. Uh, I mean, is is it the sort of thing where you're looking for? For exploits, or you're
2: looking for like physical tells, or like what what's what is studying yeah, tape and tell? I mean, all, all of the above. I, I think, I, I think it's fair to say that that none of us are playing perfectly. Um, that's that's the first thing. I think that people do mistake make mistakes, and also the amount of uh, study or attention people have to the sort of newest um, technologies or or the way they're approaching certain spots. Um, Adjusting to new ranges or, or whatever it might be, it's, it's not. It's it's not like everyone's progressing at the same rate. People get, you know, but people get have success and they get slack, or or you know, people are coming new to the scene and, and bringing new ideas or whatever. Um, and then yeah, so so I think I think that's just the case, and then also there's just the, the nature of different approaches to things. So you know how you interpret the ICM model, I think that that's that, um yeah just as we have the example of like i think i maybe approaches things differently to me or 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 you know estimating how much you weigh future game for instance like right? just as an example when we don't have the um well i i don't think any of us have the resources to to really play out over enough iterations um across future hands and 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 across the entirety of the final table, you know, some people think there's limitations that I see in a model and make deviations from what a solver tells us to do right now, and other people don't. And and just having an, understand, an understanding of how they're going to, because if you're expecting them to play to your model, and they're not, now you need to uh, readjust your strategy. So that would just be one example. But um but yeah, understanding how re- the recreational players play—I mean, garnering any information you can—and of course, by the way, uh, the the very the, the one of the things that, that you know has, has been a big influence in my game. You see them do something that you wouldn't have done, you bigger sizing you wouldn't have done, <laughs> and, and now it's like, okay, let's see if this is a thing. And and a lot of a lot of breakthroughs in my game come from seeing someone use a smaller sizing or a sizing that I wouldn't bigger sizing than I would have used or whatever it might be, and. Um, Yeah, and then sort of working out the reasons for it or or solving using this new sizing and incorporating it into market.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I I often tell, um, you know, when I'm coaching, a lot of people are – Looking for excuses to play higher stakes, uh, I would say, is, is the thing that I encounter fairly often. And so there's this idea of, well, I have to play against better players in order to get better. And I, I often don't think that that's true. Like, I think there's a lot that you can learn from playing with people who are, who are weaker than you are, just in terms of like, it might be easy to beat them, but to beat them for the maximum is just as much of a skill as, as anything else is. But that's an interesting example where you, you kind of see them do something where like, oh, I didn't even realize that was like part of the game tree. I need to go back and look at that.
2: Yeah, of course, and, and and you don't need to sit down and play with like in order to 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 gain that information. Fortunately now, I mean yeah. it's obviously incredible the amount of of whole card footage there is now. If you play uh, high stakes or you know you can you can watch big finals tables from all the online poker stars events every week. You you just actually can't you know I I I can't watch all the footage I would like to watch of my opponents playing, um, but it's but it's definitely it's definitely part of uh, my routine to do at least some of that and and, and solve the spots and then see whether, you know, if they do something I don't expect. Okay,
3: is it like they're making a mistake, but oh, my approach is off in the spot, you know? Yeah, to your point about not having to play against them to learn from them, I actually had a little bit of experience with that where I was watching Ike play in, I believe it was, one of the first, uh, poker masters events. And he was one of the first people I s- saw making like the bigger three bets from out of position. Sure. And so I kind of studied that and some of the other things. And at the time I was writing for, um, two plus two magazine. And mm-hmm. so I wrote an article about what I learned from watching Ike and he was kind enough to, uh, Read my article and let me know if I made the right assumptions. And he said I did a lot, and and you know just from some of the things I observed. So, yeah, yeah cool. I would never want to play against him, but <laughs> uh, I did learn from watching him play. So I can confirm that that's the thing.
2: Yeah, he's he's a real he's a real gen, of course, and 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 the perfect example, um, you know of the, of the sort of person I'm talking about who's been doing it for so long, and it's quite quite real quite remarkable what he's uh, achieved over the last, yeah, the length of an extraordinary career.
1: Are there people um, who you would point to as, as being particularly intimidating to, to play? I mean, obviously a lot of them are like uh, extremely strong players, but uh, even just like their table presence or something, uh, is it sort of above and beyond their like card skill that makes them particularly uh, intimidating?
2: No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I'm quite comfortable now at most tables, and, 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 you know, I've played enough hands and been in enough um, high-pressure situations. Actually, I really remember listening to a podcast with Tom Hall once where he said about how you can see players that have gone really deep in the World Series main event or in EPT, and then they're sort of hardened by it. And I I feel like I've sort of done enough now where I am quite quite hardened. Very occasionally, though, I I am at a table with someone new yeah, just quite recently we in Cyprus, Ben eighty six was playing. So you know, there's like a table where it's like, Ike, it was like Linus, Ike, Ben eighty six, or something like this. You know, I also, also I remember the Madrid main event. I came down to play earlier. It's like two two hundred fifty big blinds deep, and it was Deboras, Makita, Linus, Ike, Limitless like and another cash game player and you know i had one of those if you can't spot the fish at the table you know, <laughs> at the moment. um just because of the name you know I, I mean i i sort of joke about you know i was like linus did a four bell or whatever and i was like great this is the sizing i'll be i'll be using this sizing if i four but you know I, it, we're, I, I actually i played a hand against ike which i which i ran afterwards which i very clearly i very very i had a set against him i very clearly messed it up and uh, to, to sort of have a takeaway afterwards about it you know and 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 you know so, something i've started to study more just because these are, uh, if you want to you want to play these early levels is a very crucial crucial area of the tournament you know we obviously in the in the one that uh, i was fortunate enough to win you had to register from the beginning and it was all pro tables because it was the recreational players were seg- segregated into a, another side so again you you know um, Slonis, Patrick, Antonis, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. P- people who are going to be a bit more familiar with 250 big Steve. So yeah, I mean, th- there are occasional moments where I'm sort of I sense the the lineup, or or I ha- have a moment of oh, I'm playing live with, with Ben eighty six, like a, a big idol of mine, uh, and you 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 just sort of take that in, and then okay, you, you get on with the job in hand, and you know, I, I you know, as 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 we all know, it's it's their two cards against your two cards you know at 40 big blinds there's nothing really he can do to me that that I'm not going to be able to cope with fortunately
1: there there were rumors i, I think um i thought like they were they were fairly credible a few years ago before there was there was quite such good public facing solver technology that maybe some of the like higher highest stakes players had had Stuff custom built for them, you know, essentially like solvers before solvers before there was PO, you know, that that maybe some, some of the highest stakes people had had access to that already. Do you have any sense of whether that's like, is there you know something better than <laughs> the solvers that, uh, that Carlos or I might be using that, um, that maybe some of the like higher stakes people have that, that they've just you know
2: had custom built for themselves that you're aware of. No, not not that I know of, but of course, I, I mean, I wouldn't wouldn't put it put it past them. I I mean, I'm certain that if they did have it, they would be very cautious about. It. Like like me, I mean, put it this way: if I had it, I wouldn't tell you on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, and I, I want to be clear like I I wouldn't consider that cheating I think that's just like no uh, you know, that, that makes sense but well no but but my next question was going to be like when you're playing at those kinds of stakes I feel like the the incentive for cheating is is enormous and the amount of money that it could make sense for someone to spend on like a very elaborate cheating setup or like paying people off or, or things like that um I just feel you know, like I I don't worry. I mean, Nate used to tell me I should worry more about cheating than I do at the stakes that I'm playing. But I feel like once you're getting into like six and seven figures, I mean, how much of, how much is that present of
2: mind for you? Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, in general, I, I don't, I'm, I'm I, you know, I, I try and be quite open-hearted and, and maybe, maybe I'm even naive, but, but certainly with the community we, we have at the moment, I feel quite trusting of everyone. I mean, for instance, the, 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 you know, obviously, we recently had the, the very public cheating scandal. and I feel like, for instance, for those guys, the trade-off is not even clear, like that they, they could have had a liquid, well, they could make playing straight up over the next 10 years versus what they've done by getting banned from all legitimate forms of poker. I don't know. Maybe they they, they messed up. I mean, even in terms of like a, like a strap or whatever, let alone how disgusting it is. I mean, the, the good thing is, is, is when I'm playing against Ben86 or Ike or Tim or Keith, these people have just been around long enough and their roots in the community are deep enough that, I mean, I just trust Seth and Jason and Ben Heath and Borby, like trust them very, you know, a huge, huge amount. And obviously they're also, it's also hopefully you, in that context, you'd be, You'd be trying to cheat very sharp business people, the 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 people that run the tournament, who are very sharp. You know the best dealers, the best tournament directors, and then also the sharpest pros. Hopefully, should be hard to get that through. Uh, you know that would be my sort of sense of the of the game theory of it. Well, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't all be vigilant. You know, given given what we what's emerged over the last couple of years. Um, about like how the the terrible cheating that that was perpetrated against the community, um, you know, by a few individuals. We 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 all should certainly be vigilant. But like currently, I feel like pretty pretty good.
1: So you you. You mentioned the, it might have even been a bad calculation for, for some of the folks who, who were involved in like recent public cheating things and just in terms of, you know, the, the, they've lost access to a lot of good opportunities as a result of, of having that reputation. I don't think it was obvious in retrospect that that was going to happen. Like that, that was kind of the first time that that's happened, that someone who was caught cheating in, in one venue kind of suffered consequences for it elsewhere. I, I mean, I think it's a good precedent, but.
2: But to be but to be fair, I should be absolutely clear. I don't think that 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 uh, Seth Davies or, or or Jason Kuhn is doing calculation and being like, oh, I could cheat, but actually, my ego <laughs> right. and playing straight up over the next ten years is higher. I really don't think that that's that's the case. I mean, I, I hope that just the sort of competitive spirit, or and that's not really the right word, competitive drive, you need to get to a point of excellence in poker where you can compete at those stakes kind of is gonna hopefully steer you away from, from from cheating anyway. And as I say, most of these guys have been around a long, long time. And anyone that does emerge, I mean certainly I can say from like a poker stars perspective, if you start playing high stakes and you start getting results, you know, that are uh, deviate from from normal levels of expectation, you're gonna be intensely scrutinized by the game integrity team and by other players. And so hopefully, you know, we've all got then we're all now a lot more on top of this issue. And it's going to be harder than ever to cheat. Uh, That said, of course, the technology is going to improve and, and, and that might facilitate cheating. It's just something we've got to be very vigilant of.
1: Yeah, and I didn't even so much mean to to imply those guys as much as you, you get these people and they're just caught, at least from, from my perspective, just like reading poker media, they just refer to these people as like businessmen. And like, oh yeah, it was like the table was Sam Grafton and Isaac Axton and three businessmen or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, I guess you can hope when when some person shows up and like suddenly wants to play poker for two hundred thousand dollars, you'd be like, oh, well, hopefully this is just some some rich guy who this is like a fun activity for him. But I guess I would wonder, you know. Maybe there's a reason he's willing to invest two hundred thousand dollars to play poker against people who are obviously much better than he is.
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, I don't want to get too too defensive about about this world, but I would assume that that's just a uh, that's why you've got to be incredibly cautious if you, as a high stakes professional or any kind of professional poker player, get invited to a home game to play. Oh, there's this great home game. I'll put you in. You're playing. You can't lose. You're playing against huge fit. that's where you're likely to get to you playing in, in the kind of arena that i am where yeah let's just talk about the you know the EPT, like the best staff the best tournament directors and then also, and a lot of things
1: are on camera also which
2: helps yeah and then huge you, your, your whole card footage like continually um throughout you know i mean like psbc we had three tv tables or whatever when on the front the, but i would imagine super super hard you know the very highest standards of game integrity um sort of watching over the situation and then and then um yeah whole cards as well so i feel pretty pretty confident about it who knows Uh, you know maybe in a few years this will look back at this interview and it'll seem very naive but I, i feel pretty pretty confident
1: so the, the real big victory you had at the the two hundred k event where, where you won the the five and a half million dollar first prize, this was um, what is the, this the Queen Rivet Invitational? What what is what is Queen Rivet?
2: <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not. Happy. It's it's a some sort of crypto exchange, I believe.
1: That's wild that they're just like, all of a sudden, there's this, like one of the biggest poker tournaments in the world, like, I mean, dollar buy-in wise, sponsored by this like organization that I've never heard of before. And all of a sudden they're like this. I mean, I guess they're not like a a continually a major player in in the poker scene, but all of a sudden there's just like this, this huge tournament sponsored by these folks.
2: Yeah, I guess there's a little crossover right now between, well, or for a long time, there's been a crossover between crypto and and poker. I mean, I believe the Poker Go stuff is also Storm X or something like this, a lot of a lot of crypto um, sponsorship or, or whatever. I guess it's something that's going to be more prevalent as we go forward.
1: Mm-hmm. So the, the the structure of that tournament was like you were partnered kind of with a with a recreational player or, or how did you, that you work? Need,
2: you needed to be invited by a businessman. Now some of these were uh, sort of facilitated. Let's say okay, there's a, 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 a VIP. I think I think they, the preferred nomenclature VIP. as vip there's a vip who who wants to play hey we have this interest list from pros and um and they could sort of pick one or be recommended one or whatever in my instance it was it was very very organic i was i wasn't planning to play cyprus i took the summer off um and didn't, didn't do any study didn't play any poker after the i came to vegas for two weeks played the 50k and the 100k and then took the summer off and so yeah, I was, but I got a phone call from my, my friend Dave and, and he said, uh, he said, he's a old friend of mine. He used to play poker for a living, just play Omaha. He's never really played tournaments. He was like, bro, I'm going to play this, this tournament. I think it's going to be amazing. I'd love you to be partnered with me. And I, and I, you know, I said, I said, listen, we could shop around a bit. I could put you in touch with a few of the guys, you know, maybe you want to, you know, I don't know. Whether Stevie or Adamo, or mention name, names name, so you might want to. And he was like, No, no, no I wouldn't want to do it with you. Like, I think you're the man, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Yeah, cool. So, um, you know, in some instances, you have to like do a bit of horse trading of like, um, you have to give up a certain amount of action. But he was like, How much do you want? Um, I took a decent piece for myself. Actually, I bought a little piece of him for morale. And then we, yeah, we got to it. And it, and it was great because he actually cashed. So I'm oh, sorry. So the one, one thing we did agree to is he wanted a bit of coaching, so I gave him some coaching as as, as as a thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, and he got got 14th or 16th in it, and then of course I won it. And yeah, it was it was it was amazing. And he he obviously had a big piece of me, um, which was really nice. And and yeah, it was just a, it, obviously, you know, I I wouldn't start sort of recommending this as a model for tournament poker, but in the instance of us, it was an amazing experience incredibly bonding for the two of us to be, you know, we're swapping, you know, I was giving him advice throughout the tournament and and he was checking in on me and we were sweating each other's stack. And then, yeah, I, and then of course he was railing me, him and his partner were railing me, his fiance were railing me when I won. And yeah, it was just, I won a lot of money. He won a lot of money. It was just brilliant. basically.
1: Yeah. It sounds like it would have been a great experience, even without the five and a half million dollars attached to it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Yeah. It was really, really, really nice.
1: Uh, I was going to shift into talking about some non poker stuff, but I wanted to give you guys a chance. If there's anything else uh, more like directly poker related, you wanted to talk about,
3: um, I'll just um, say one comment that I I thought of a second ago when um, you were telling the story or talking about some of the guys you play with. I envy the fact that you guys still call each other by your screen names. But- <laughs> That's something I miss that we don't do anymore.
2: <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, I think those old sort of full full tilt screen names or... Yeah, you know, I, I was... Actually, I was commentating on the PCA final and uh, and uh, Tapor was on that. And, of course, Tapor is his, like... It's not even a screen name. It's like his Pocket 5's name or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's quite... quite. You know, probably people chilling in were like, Whoa, what, what what's he talking about? You know, and I, I knew his... I knew his full tilt screen. You know, I know I know his full tilt screen name or whatever. And then it's just ancient, irrelevant ancient history. But to me, it's that's who he is. Is his full tilt screen name or whatever? <laughs> it's quite remarkable that the, the the longevity of that that connection.
1: It, it sounds like, Sam, I mean, you have less free time these days, the amount of time that's going into, like, traveling and, and playing and, and studying and whatnot, but what are you doing in the time? Like, when you say, I, I took a couple of weeks off over the summer or something like that, you know, what, what are you doing in that time?
2: Well, I do I do fight to make sure that I have time to do other things. So, I mean, I went to Finland. I had a holiday in Finland. I visited Tim, actually. And then I went to Palestine for a month, and uh, I worked out there, and I spent time with my friends out there. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm always trying to – Kind of push, like, I'm, I'm always trying to find a reason to skip a poker stop and, and have fun to read and, 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 um, you know, pursue other things and go to the theater and take advantage of, you know, I live, I, I, where I live in London, you know, I'm um, the art galleries and the, and the theaters and, and, and the bookshops around here and, and see friends and, yeah, and, and do other things. It's, it's just, yeah, it's, 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 it's harder to do, but, it, but of course it's still important.
1: I find that reassuring because I, I've I feel like a lot of the people who I think of now as top players are and you know some of them like um, Ben Cb you know has, has kind of just come out and said this of like in order to be the best at poker I just like explicitly decided to trade off with a bunch of other things in my life and I think the phrase he used was like give up your twenties or something like that but um you know the, the and, and I think it has not been. Like, I, I think it has not had good effects for, for some of these people that they've okay. kind of...
2: But, but, uh, funny, I mean, I, I don't want to, like, reignite that, invert commas, controversy or whatever, but... I mean, I, I was... I, I, someone was saying that to me, and I, I was just saying... To, I was said to them, I said, listen, I went to the club a lot when I was in my 20s, and I, I go to the club in my 40s, and it's a lot better in your 20s. You can't just, like, put it on hold and be like, yeah, like, fun and girls and... Backpacking and these things I'll do in twenty years time. I mean, it's it's just there's times and seasons to life, and yeah, it's it's a lot harder to be up be on the dance floor till four AM when when you've got a bad back and <laughs> like yeah, all, the, all, the, all the things that I have. Yeah, now, yeah,
1: but that's what I mean. Like it's 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 reassuring to see that it is possible to like be a more well rounded person who is still part I mean, in like in, in fun things and in, in, you know, culture things and reading and going to museums and like, it's, it's possible to do that and, and still be a top poker player. Like that you don't have to turn into just like a, a poker grinding machine.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess you're, you're, you're sort of complimenting me there. I, I, I'll take that. Obviously. Yeah. It's, 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 it's something I've I'll put it this way. something I, I do kind of fight hard to do too to, to carve out some space to think about other things, um, and and you know, I, I I guess this podcast will be listened to by other sort of aspiring players or whatever, and and I, I think that that is is important just because it can it can pass you by otherwise. I mean, I I just had this stuff in the Bahamas where I really did not get to know the Bahamas. I know nothing more about Bahamian life or culture or music than I did before I went there. Now, it's kind of excusable. There's a lot of poker. I happen to run really deep in both the main events. It's great. But, you know, if you went to every poker stop across, you know, Bahama, if you went to Prague and Barcelona and Paris and Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera, and you really didn't, you know, you could do that and really not gain anything from it in terms of your understanding of of different places or cultural art or Having time to just, you know, get to know people, and 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 that that to me is like is a mistake, um, for sure. Now you know it's quite quite understandable. The other point that, that perhaps C B is making, which is, you know, in order to succeed in a very competitive career, you need to make some sacrifices, and you you need to work hard. I mean that that's that's also true. And and I'm not saying that I have the the balance completely right, right? Um, you know, maybe I'd be even better if I if I did make a few more sacrifices, but. But, it, but it's it's something that I that I spend some time thinking about and and you know I, I'm I mean I miss the WSOP main event for instance which I think a lot of people just would never do and also maybe it's just a huge error like I mean I'm I'm I don't feel like I have the I'm not I'm not sort of uh, now we're talking about this say, hey I've got the, the answer that might be just a huge pump but you know I, I like I need to find a month off somewhere or extended period because you know, having a weekend off is not really the same as having. You 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 can kind of feel like, you know, really um, like a cloud lifting, and you're really able to think about other things when you take a week off, or two weeks off, or even even a month off, and really able to like read with a, a bit with more focus and, and and attentiveness, or listen and talk to other people with more focus and attentiveness when when you're not in the in the sims and in the in the pressurized situation of poker, you know. I mean, of course, it's ironic I'm saying this right now because I'm going to Bahamas and I'm going to Paris and I'm going straight to Vietnam. I'm <laughs> going to be, you know, all over poker and just thinking about poker. But, you know, there will be a, a two-week holiday at the end of Vietnam where I won't think about poker and and I'll be about exploring Vietnam. And, and you know, I. but of course, again, that I'm very privileged. If I had two kids at home, you know, I, w- I perhaps wouldn't be able to make that time. So, you know, a lot, a lot of the guys on, on the scene as well, they have... Actual responsibilities, which I don't have.
1: Now, what I what I really want to believe, and I realize you may not have adequate perspective on this, but what I really want to believe is that it it's not a trade off that that somehow you're like a better poker player as a result of um, indulging these other things. It's not like oh, I could be an even better poker player, but I take vacations. Um, is there? What's your reaction to that?
2: Well, yeah, I mean it's 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 specific to the individual, of course. But I mean, for me, you know, if I'm gonna have longevity you know i i mean i'm not i'm not planning on ending this career tomorrow or like i'm just gaining on my ev for this year and then be out so i want to sort of yeah have a have an extended career so i want to live my life while i'm playing poker i'm not doing this now so that oh when i'm 50 i'll retire and then i'll start enjoying myself or then i'll start learning about the world or then i'll start having meaningful friendships or 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 you know, good relationships with my partner, you know, or whatever it might be. Um, I want to sort of collect knowledge, wisdom, understanding, um, you know, have time to contemplate things and and, and forge friendships at, along the way. I don't want to also, I mean, for me, it was slightly different because I didn't get into poker until like 28, 29. But like, I don't want to lose all of the friendships I had before or the connections I, to to my interests that I had. That I that I cultivated before I got into poker, you know. Again, I I don't want to sound aggrandizing. I I I think that that I don't think that I have the trade off. If if you allow me to use that term again, completely right. But I but I do think that you know, uh, yeah, I I do think that you can play very strong, very competitive poker, and still have other interests. I, I I do think so.
1: What are you reading now, or what would you have you have you read anything recently that you would recommend? <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I mean, I'm always I'm always reading. Yeah, um, I've been reading Deborah Levy recently, who's like, a, who's um, British. Well, she's was born in South Africa, but she's a British novelist uh, by all accounts. Moved to Britain at a young age, and she has a, a sort of she calls it a living autobiography, a sort of trilogy of of, of memoirs, loosely connected memoirs. So I'm reading, and now I'm reading one of her novels. She's pretty, she's pretty interesting. I mean, so for instance, like the third, the third one is called, um, it's called Real Estate, which is about her relationship to, in later life, her children are leaving the the house, the, the flat that she has, and it's about her, it's about her relation, the the, the the title, I guess, Real Estate is related to sort of unreal estate of like the imaginative places that we live or you know, she has a sort of um, she's sort of precarious to some degree, even as a reasonably successful novelist. And writes in a, a shed in someone else's house, and is having to leave that shed where she's written her books and, and find somewhere else to write. And she has a flat, which, I mean, of course it it's it's sort of gendered because she's a divorced woman and her children are leaving, and it's about her home. And and she has thing she has objects she's collected for the house that she's going to live in. She's like. Or painting but is like that will be great in the the home, like the 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 house that I eventually own, but she hasn't ever got round to buy but like that house. it was sort of resonant with me because I've often thought about where I live or am I a Londoner or am I English? Should I move away from England and get out of this terrible country? Or or are there things about me that are most suited to, to, to being here? I also have a huge book collection which I put into storage. Um, when I moved to Poland seven years ago or moved to Prague I think seven years and it's never come out storage and it actually continually gets added to and there's and there's posters and, and paintings there that I'm like oh that, that I've got to keep you know I've got DVDs there by the way which you know by the time I unpacked <laughs> this this sort of Che Guevara poster that I put lipstick on and ha- had you know in my student bedroom I thought great got to keep that you no know, I'm going to well, I might be fifty-five by the time I get it out. Story, am I going to just put it up on the blue tacket to the wall of my home? You know, so I also have a, this idea of a sensitivity or an imaginary relationship with the places that we leave and, and come and go from. Um, I was was really interesting to me. I mean, she's she's just a very smart and interesting woman. And I read. Um, I, I, I was. I just. I was just in Brazil over uh, uh, the weeks leading up to uh, PCA, and so I read some. I read a. George Amado novel, first novel of his I read after I, I went to Salvador in November in the north of, of, uh, Brazil. And, um, I visited a friend there and actually the, the area of Salvador he lived is where George Amado lived during his writing life. And I visited the museum and such like. And it sort of inspired me to read, uh, some of his books I've been meaning to get around to for, for a while. And I read, um, have you ever read W.G. Sabot?
1: No, they never heard
2: of him. Ah, uh, he's he's great. Really interesting guy to get into. So I, I mean I've read him on and off for a for a long time, and so sort there's of only one of his novels. He died quite quite an early age in his very his early 50s. He's um a German writer, but he lived in he lived in um East Anglia in the UK for a for a long time. And he has a book called Austerlitz, which is he writes these books which are they're written as if they're auto, as as if they're sort of autobiographical writing. Like the the narrator is someone that must be very close to Semold himself, and he puts in photographs, which, because I've read a bit about him, I know are sort of fake, but they make it seem sort of um, like documentary-like. And in this, he has a relationship. He meets a guy at a train station in in Brussels, and they have a relationship. And this this man was. Um, was a refugee from 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 Germany in the in the late '30s, and grew up not knowing his real name. Was given a, a Welsh name. Grew up with a sort of Welsh identity, only I mean, to have it revealed at 16 that he, he he was in fact German and Jewish, and 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 so it's it's about about the Holocaust and about memory, but then it's also about sort of he's a he's a he he studies architecture, so there's lots of discursive. I'm not making it sound like a, a thrilling book to read, but it's it's <laughs> it's a, it's about history and eu- European history and the connected nature of uh, the hidden memories of of sort of of architecture of civilization of of a sort of Walter Benjamin's idea of like all documents of civilization are also documents of barbarism, you know the the the, the sort of. Um, yeah, the connection. You know, they meet in this this Belgian train station, and it's about yeah, Belgian's relationship to the Congo and and exploitation there, and and, and the connection between different different disasters, catastrophes of, of European history. It's uh, so, I mean, he's just a really amazing, amazing writer, so and great person to spend some time with.
3: Well, speaking speaking of European history, uh, tell us uh, about this experience you had where we you're reading a book about. Uh, World War II, and you run across a mention of your grandfather's name. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, that was... Oh, my gosh. That, yeah, that, I jumped out of my... That's a very Sebaldian
2: moment, by the way, as well. That kind that of... <laughs> uh, to be suddenly connected with something across time and space, that that these currents of history are 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 there, uh, running through everything we do, and in the nooks and crannies of the buildings and, and, and the streets that we live in. Um, yeah, so... I mean, just to recap for those that didn't didn't sort of see it on Twitter or, or whatever, I was reading a history of World War II by Max Hastings, just sort of revising uh, that period of history in my mind because um, I've read some very specific books about aspects of, of World War II, but a uh, generalised history I hadn't read for a very long time. I got right to the end of the book, and what made it more even more poignant than it seems from the quotation is he's he's in general he was making the point of. You know the end of World War II and the and the joy of D Day and VE Day wasn't, you know, uh, sort of the end of end of suffering for a lot of people. He talks about people who, you know, um, then were interned in prison camps and died, or you know, died were freed freed and and you know had to trek across Europe and died of starvation along the way, or you know the 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 the, the tragedy of Eastern Europe being then occupied by the Soviet Union and the, the, you know. Partisans coming back down from the the hills and being purged, or or what have you, and and then the anecdote it comes upon an anecdote about my grandfather, where it says you know the gunner Bob Grafton, um, you know about him going out to to the far east, um, and then um, the fall of Singapore and him him getting on a boat and and fleeing to Burma and then being interned. But it, it, this is the one anecdote he he sort of mentions where. You know it ends with the lines about um you know it, it was an amazingly positive story because bob my granddad married his dog and it shows and he quotes the letters between them you can find on my twitter very very uh moving letters that he wrote from from a prison war camp in japan and so but you know it makes you feel super blessed that amongst all these terrible stories of world war ii that the example that that, that the historian uses of um of a story that ended well is the reuniting of my grandfather and, and my my grandmother and yeah it was just I mean it was it was it was beautiful to read it and and seemed like I mean yeah it's such a coincidence as well to to actually read it without being forewarned that there was an anecdote about my grandfather and it was it was amazing experience yeah
1: well that was a much better last question than I was going to close with thank you Carl <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice. Uh, Sam, anything you want to leave us with?
2: No, that's great. It was. It's always nice to talk to you guys, and, and of course, this is like you know, I don't know how long this podcast has gone, but a very, very long time. I'll see. Yeah, we,
1: we just passed ten years.
2: Yeah, it's, it's just amazing uh, as as what you've done of sort of uh, this long, long, long discussion with with poker players and the poker community that you've had. So, congratulate you both on on uh, on the hard work It must do. it Must to keep keep it up and running and and produce such high quality stuff so good for you guys
1: well the the uh it provides the impetus to catch up with old friends like you so thank you for that
2: pleasure mate pleasure <laughs> All
1: right. safe travels take care
2: thanks
3: guys yeah. okay bye guys
0: The devotion of a car, my of the fair passage of a bill, and who will sign us into law. I know you won't, you won't, you won't, you won't, will you? You won't, you won't, you won't, you won't, will you? You won't, you won't.